if you learn to think like a business buyer, just as if you learn to think as a, a like a, a buyer of real estate or properties of houses, flats, whatever, condominiums, whatever you call them in America, then you're going to do a better job of selling your business because you're going to think like a buyer. Hey folks, this is Michael Vesey from Amazing FBA Podcast for Amazon Sellers. I'd like to introduce an episode from our sister podcast, The E-Commerce Leader, which has got a slightly broader remit for all e-commerce sellers. In this deep dive episode, Jason Miles and I deep dive into a key e-commerce topic. Hope you enjoy the show. If you would like resources and links and other help, to do with today's episode, just go to amazingfba.com forward slash 406. In a recent episode, Jason quietly shared how he's acquired 12 brands over the last few years. In this episode, partly because I'm incredibly curious about this, we are going to dive into the topic of how and why to acquire e-commerce businesses. Jason, are you ready to share more on this fun topic, more specifically about your personal experiences? Yeah, I am. This is going to be a good one. I'm really excited to have a conversation, share more details and ideas about how not only I know, Michael, you're intrigued by this idea, but I hope all of our listeners are as well. There's something to learn here for everybody who's in the game. And I think it's going to be a great conversation. Yeah. Yeah. So one of the first question is really, why should anyone be interested in this? Let's put it broadly first. Okay. You've acquired businesses. We've got to ask you why you did that. But why is this mm-hmm. a topic that is something that sh- people should be thinking about who are not yet thinking of acquiring? Yeah, I think it comes down to two simple questions that we can unpack and dive deeper into. The first one is, does it add value to your current business? Does the thing you're acquiring a- add strategic value or some kind of value? And there's a lot of different types of value, which we can talk about. But that's the first question. The second question is, is it available to you at a reasonable price? And I think the, those are obviously like duh questions and sound so simple. But there's a lot of nuance there and a lot of detail to unpack and think through. So I think that's the first fundamental question. I'm not a fan of acquiring randomness just because it's out there. I'd rather have people acquire something that adds specific value to what they're currently doing. And I guess that's the underscoring that first bullet point. That's the key thing, I think, to sort out and think about. I think that's true. And I would say just to keep the attention, pretty much everyone who's in the e-commerce game, I think even if you're not thinking of acquiring a business for a while, what I would say is very likely you're building towards a sale of a business. Oh, I know y- yeah, sure. 20 or 30 Amazon business owners or former owners who sold their businesses, it's a very real thing. It's not a theoretical possibility. It happens every mm-hmm. week at the moment. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That is the flip side of buying a business. So if you learn to think like a business buyer, just as if you learn to think as a, a, like a, a buyer of real estate or properties of mm-hmm. houses, flats, whatever, condominiums, whatever you call them in America, then you're going to do a better job of selling your business because you're going to think like a buyer. So we have nothing else, I would say, to put that hat on, thinking like a business buyer, even if for you that feels yeah. like something several years off is going to be valuable in that way. It's a great point. And I'll just say, I guess, to you're the one zooming out 30,000 foot view on this idea. So let me go there with you then. Yeah, I, just to add into the idea, I think the state of the union for e-commerce buying and selling is that it is just a hot market. There are so many people who can create, let's call it a version one business and then want to sell it. Hmm. And they don't have the interest in operating it forever. It's not their forever thing, but they've booted it up and they've got it going. And there's just so many people out there doing it. And so it's created this environment where people coming into it are saying to themselves, why, why should I start from scratch? I don't know what I'm doing. I'm just going to buy something from somebody who's got it up and running already. 
And that's the environment which we're operating and it's just fun to, to behold. And so there's a huge amount of opportunity there. So I guess that's the 30,000 foot view of this, which is just to say, this is not a hard to do thing right now. This is everywhere. This is everybody. This is yeah. like the thing. So I guess that's uh, important in the first bit of this. Yeah. So it is. Okay. So we looked at the why question and you said add value to your current business or does it add value and a reasonable price? Th those sound, you have the knack of making things very simple, but obviously there's going to be a little bit more nuance to that. Otherwise, I guess we'd all be doing it. Wh where are the nuances in this adding value piece? First of all, how do you assess yeah. that? Yeah. I think there are a lot of ways in which something acquire can add value. The first thing is it a brand that you would be adopting into what you would be going from. If you have one brand now, you'd be going into a portfolio brand, a house of brands. Some people refer to it as, do you have one brand that's called a branded house? Like that's the only brand you operate under. Or are you like a consumer packaged goods company like General Mills or a lot of the food packaging companies? They have tons of brands, like tons and tons of brands. And so they're a house of brands. And so that's the first decision. Are you going to be acquiring an actual public facing brand? Now that might not be true, but it's one way an acquisition can add value. It might be just simply that you're acquiring a product that will feed into your supply chain. So just add value in terms of your sourcing strategies. That's awesome. You might be acquiring a team of interesting operators that are doing a good job and you don't have a team. You need people to do a good job. And in that way, you're acquiring to hire. That's uh, acquire hire as a phrase. And then I guess the most obvious one is it could provide steady cash flow of sales and profits to you, which increases the overall value of your core business. So what is that four or five ways in which an acquisition opportunity could add value to your to your existing business. And I'm sure there are many more, but it's just top of mind. Yeah. I really like that. What you've given is three ways that are broader than I was thinking more narrowly cash flow focused and profits focused. And I guess that's the mm -hmm. tradition of private equity type model. In essence, everything gets reduced to a series of spreadsheets and financial statements. And you're looking at a much more blend of that plus the operational and branding mind that you bring. And in particular, that brand to portfolio is very interesting, isn't it? Because yeah. On the one hand, you have people like General Mills in the UK who have Unilever that actually own 20 different, I don't know, they own, I don't know mm -hmm. who owns Colgate, toothpaste to this and that, but an Oral-B toothbrushes, for example, in that vertical. Yeah. But actually a lot of things that we think of as consumers as being X company are actually owned by one big company. That's right. And um, the opposite, I guess, is true with somebody like Google who acquired YouTube, they acquired AdSense, acquired, what was it, Google Keywords tool back in the day wasn't even mm -hmm. created by Google. Mm -hmm. And yet those are kind of your like core parts of the operation now. So they've subsumed them into the Google right. brand, the unified experience for advertisers like us or consumers who search. So I guess there were two ways to flip with that, right? Your thoughts mm -hmm. on that? Yeah, yeah. You laid it out correctly there with those ideas, right? Google could have gone with Google Video and just made all the YouTube stuff called Google Video. They had a thing called Google Video, but they didn't. It had a brand associated with YouTube. And when they acquired it for a billion dollars, I think the numbers are insane. I think this is just from memory, but they acquired it for a billion dollars. And then I saw this article that said, YouTube now makes a billion dollars like every three weeks or something crazy thing like that. And that might be incorrect, but you could Google around and find the real numbers, but it was insane. And, but yes, they kept it as a standalone brand because it had brand equity and value. And, but you get these choices when you're going to acquire. And so that is a fun part of the exercise. The question is, is, the, is there a brand there that has value? And that means not only just registered trademark and the intellectual property associated with it, but it also has customer loyalty and traffic and energy and enthusiasm. 
all those things in they don't sit through and it's uh, these are the choices you get to make yeah another interesting one that springs to mind in the, in the bigger company pictures innocent smoothie which was acquired infamously in some ways by coca-cola because obviously the brand values of coca-cola and those of innocent somewhat conflicted so i suppose sometimes you can have a bit of a conflict between the sort of natural consumer base of one company uh, and, yeah. and the other but i guess that's something else you've got to think through when you're yeah. acquiring something yeah, sure. The other thing I like is the supply chain piece that you mentioned. I was speaking to somebody, who, Stephen Pope, who runs My Amazon Guy, so another Amazon agency, and he was saying he sells products made of glass. He said, Mint's the vertical integration right now. My solution to the problems of importing is don't import. Own, not only own, buy in factory, <laughs> in, buy from a factory in yeah. America, but preferably own the factory. And he said, best basically, I want to own the sand that is then turned into glass in the factory. Mm-hmm. And then I want to she wants to own the kind of whole supply chain. So obviously I know that you and you and Simon have done quite a lot of acquisitions along those lines. So tell me a little mm-hmm. bit about that sort of reason for buying. Yeah, I think it's a, an interesting play for people who are building their overall enterprise value. And that's an interesting example you mentioned about the guy wanting to own glass making process if that if he's a front end seller. I think that's the, the question is, are there resources available to you that would lower your overall future costs and or solidify your supply chain in such a way that it just makes your business stronger. It's vertical integration is the phrase, but that sounds fancy, but it's really not, it doesn't have to be that fancy. You can do this, the kitchen table entrepreneur version of this stuff is totally workable. And so, yeah, we have, we continue to acquire brands and they make sense for us to acquire. We operate, and I'm happy to explain the detail a little bit, We operate a marketplace with over a hundred and whatever, 15 brands or whatever, and something like that. And we have our own house brand and the people we work with sometimes are wanting to exit. They're done. They're retired. They're moving on. They've found other things. They just, they don't have the energy for it or whatever, or they just want to make a profit from their work. And so we're buying those as they come up and that's a fun opportunity for us. And then it just turns it in from a, in essence, on in Amazon terms, it turns it in from being a third-party seller on our marketplace to being a house brand. And that makes a ton of sense for us. And it, it is a rewarding process and enjoyable. And we've had positive, really positive feedback from the people we've done the deals with. So that's a way in which it's a win-win for everybody involved. And from the front, the customer-facing point of view, it's a win as well. It's a win-win all the way around. It's positive. And it's an exciting little journey we've been on the last couple of years. Yeah. It does sound interesting, but what is your reason for doing that? Can you just explain why you would do that? Sure. Yeah. If you think about math on long-term royalty payments, long-term royalty payment is I, as the publisher, agree to pay you a royalty on future sales forever. Now, that's a long-term commitment on my part to do monthly math and payments, and but it's a, it's all a caretaker role in a way and marketer promoter role. In a way, if you're the publisher and the marketer of a, of somebody's royalty-based work, intellectual property work, then, but then on their side of the deal, that means they'll get a residual payment for a long time. That's a relatively small amount or it's an amount, but it stacked up over 10 years. The monthly payment looks like a small amount of it. It's an opportunity on those people's side to say, I would like all the future payments right now. How far in the future are you willing to pay me for these, this future royalty stream? And can we make that deal? And that's the simplest, that's the basics of it. It's just, we're solidifying um, our catalog and portfolio and brands, and they're getting a one-time payment rather than small payments over a long time. And it's just a unique twist of our, because we're operating a marketplace, but the, we've done other deals outside of that structure 
that we I'm happy to talk about as well that are more straightforward acquisition of random outside kind of companies and brands. And but yeah, so it's a little decent. So the question is, does it add strategic value to us? And does it make a lot of sense for the seller? Yeah. Okay. So you've mentioned that how much are you willing to pay me question? So I guess that brings us to the price question, which was the other one of your two criteria. Does it add value to your brand or make uh-huh. sense? And, uh-huh. and you know, is the price reasonable? That's mm. a huge question. How do you even begin to tackle the question of the right value? Yeah. So there's different ways to value a business. And then the question is, can you come to consensus on value of the business? And so the first question is, does it generate earnings? Is a profit being made in the enterprise? And if there's profit being made in the enterprise, it makes it fairly straightforward. That's a very common scenario that many people have done. And so it's, they're simple industry standards. And it's just, a, you do a multiple of the annualized earnings. So you ask the person to do a prior 12 month profit and loss statement. How much money did they actually top line sales and then profit? And then you know, usually they have to say, well, this was profit about a, a new MacBook. And so it was, it was a discretionary spending on the owner's side or what, whatever. So you come to some rational consensus on earnings and then you do a multiple of that. And frequently that's anywhere between one times to it could be five times or seven times annualized earnings. Uh, depends on the hotness of the property involved and the brand and how many people are interested and how fast they're growing, a whole bunch of factors. But you make an offer based on a multiple of the prior 12 months earnings. And so that's some sellers will immediately warm up to that idea. And some sellers will just not want to go there because they don't feel like there's earnings that are materialized in the way that they had hoped, dreamed, planned, or thought would occur. And so that's one whole bracket of how to value And then the second bracket is if it doesn't have any earnings, there's still a lot of businesses that don't have any earnings being operated that still have a ton of value in different ways. Maybe they have intellectual property, like a patent or something. Maybe they have amazing product and there's just not been margin there. Maybe they have a great team. Maybe they figured out something on the marketing side, social media side that's really hopping, but it hasn't resulted in net profit. And then the question is, how do you value that? Those are harder, I think, to put value on. But nonetheless, it can still happen. And the question is, what what's the basis for that valuation? And how do you get to the conversation and that kind of thing? Yeah, that's a fascinating question is how to value things. And the valuing things on the multiple of earnings is very standard. In, it's about a heck of a lot in the FBA yeah. private label world, which doesn't mean that, by the way, this is why I think every single business owner should think in these terms that we're discussing today, even if they mm-hmm. never actually buy a business or sell one. Because the value of your business, folks, in general, if you're selling on Amazon, it's pretty simple. It's between two, 2.5 and maybe 3.5 yeah. if you're really lucky of your okay, you 12 month earnings. So if you have no earnings, you have no value to your business in essence, unless you can sell off the email. It's something. But I would just say that is, that is valuable. I, there are valuable assets in a business that's not earning any profit. Sure. And that's, I mean, so if you've got a high revenue rate, and no profits, you don't have a zero value business. And I would just right. caution people to not dump something that's misvaluation is the name of the game. That's how people win and lose in the scenario is misvaluing something. And if you do have items in the business that clearly someone would have to pay to create, that's a way to look at it. If you would have to, it's like a replacement value idea. If you would have to pay to create a list of 10,000 email subscribers or pay to create a product and that's ha- being manufactured in China, then there, that's somebody else might pay you for that. So there you go. So anyway, I didn't mean to interrupt, but yeah. Oh, but that's fantastic. That brings you to the a little thing that's happening in the mastermind at the moment. Obviously can't share specifics, but 
I was approached by one of the mastermind members because they have a company that they've been talking to, which is in a related industry, some of the products, what they have, and they're basically selling up as a mom and pop business after years in business or something. And they couldn't get any responses. So the first thing I said is they said the fortunes in the follow-up. Why don't you send them a registered post, an actual physical letter that the owners in America and the guys in the mastermind's in the UK, and then phone them and email them. And lo and behold, they did get a response. These guys apparently have several hundred thousand email addresses for a customer database, but mm -hmm. not many of them are active. Then this guy said to me, look, I know you think about this sort of stuff a lot, Mike, get him famous for obscure thinking, obviously, at this stage of the game. And he said, how do we put a value on that? So I gave him a few thoughts, but... Uh, that's an interesting case, right? So they have been trading, but it's not a future trading company. They're buying yeah. so much as a list of people interested in products in the category that they also sell. Mm -hmm. it's an that's an example of what you've just been saying. The kind of replacement cost of finding those people might be actually quite a lot of Google mm -hmm. AdWords, running a website, email campaign writing, and so forth. So how yeah. would you value a deal like that if you came across it? I've done that before. And so I have a done, I have done a deal like that actually. I've done two deals like that, actually. And the first deal, the owner just asked me what I thought the business value was. And it was basically, you know, losing money every month. So yeah, to buy that, you're buying a horse that eats. That's the phrase. You got to feed that horse. You're buying something that you have to invest into the next month after you pay the original owner. And so I did. I've done two deals like that and happy to do it. Now, in the first case, the the business owner had no, no idea. He wasn't sure there was how to value it or if there was value. And I just made him an offer and I made him an offer that was so ridiculously good for me. I was going to be happy if he said yes. And if he said no, I would chalk it up to me being, let's call it frugal or conservative in my valuation because I knew that there was in the next 12 months, I knew how much I would have to spend to keep this thing going. That was a fantastic deal for me. And it was a it went through. And happy as a clam. And he was happy too. And he got rewarded for his work. He didn't think there was value there. And, there, and he got a check that was a sizable check to him. And I got uh, a brand that I'm happy with. In another scenario, we did a deal and the owner had clearly had a value in mind. And the value in mind was just the valuation based on work and effort and not based on earnings, but based on the sunk costs, I guess you could say, what, what had gone into making it. And in that scenario, we didn't really have an opportunity to budge much on the pricing. But here's the trick. This is like real estate in a lot of ways. If you're familiar with real estate deals and that kind of thing, we negotiated on the terms of the deal a lot. And actually, there was plenty of pliability and flexibility. And I guess you could say negotiableness, negotiability on the terms of the deal. And so then that just totally made it work. So we we're like, you'll get your prize, but here's what we need to make that a reality. Done. And so that was how that worked out. And we're happy as clams. And it was a successful exit for that person as well. And that's just, it's turned out really, call that the, our deal of the decade. If you would like resources and links and other help to do with today's episode, just go to amazingfba.com forward slash 406 i like and, it i mean i think it, you make an extremely good point when you were warning not to throw the baby out with the bathwater in the phrase you use in the uk i don't know if you use that uh -huh, in the us sure, it sounds yeah. a bit alarming but in other words you've created an asset of value even if it's actually losing money as you said the horse that buying a horse that eats i like that phrase yeah so that's actually i think increasingly valuable there's a nice synergy there between somebody right. got something that nobody else could actually use but if you happen to be in the same space or you want to enter the space 
Especially yeah. value to you as a very specific buyer, isn't it? Like these guys who wanted to buy an email list of several hundred thousand people yeah. in a very specific area. To me or to anyone else that I know, it would be completely and utterly valueless. But yeah. in particular people, it's actually a value. And then there's a, it comes down to the match between the gap that the buyer has, like what the seller has to offer, I guess. Yeah. Totally. And you're right. It's really, people would ask the question, well, why would you acquire something that's, that you have to spend money on the next month? In addition to what you paid for it, there's no profit because there's strategic value. And it's because it's bolting onto something that I already have going in a way that adds value to what I'm bolting on. And just think of it this way. If you've got an engine in your vehicle that's generating profit, but you don't have a trunk or a bumper or a hood or a roof rack, then those things don't have to add va- a profit, but you still need them in your business. And what you're doing at the owner level is you're saying to yourself, how can I make what I have more valuable? And you, a lot of times in our mind, we do that thinking when we say, I'll spend money on Facebook ads, I'll spend money on AMS ads, I'll launch a new product. And all of those are good strategies, but Acquiring another company that would add something interesting to the party is also incredibly valuable. And you mentioned email lists. Of course, that's one of the things that's valuable. You can have a really large email list and not be making any profit, but to to someone else who has the product suite that's of interest, that could be very valuable to to acquire. So there you go. Yeah, I think that's this how to look at it. Yeah, yeah, it's interesting. Is things that people often will, as marketers, forever and ever talk about being valuable assets in your business, such as a list, the money is mm-hmm. in the list, the famous phrase, I believe mm-hmm. it to be true. And yet people don't tend to be in the mood to actually pay money for the list. They'll hire lists from list brokers. They'll build their own list, very mm-hmm. common activities. There doesn't seem to be a thinking of as common as it is like this, this guy I'm talking no. to potentially is going to do it. You've done it a couple of times. So I think that actually, to me, that means there's probably better value to be had because if everybody's doing something, that tends to push the price up. So mm-hmm. Amazon ads, Google ads, Facebook ads get incredibly expensive now as a mm-hmm. customer acquisition strategy. I'm not saying one shouldn't do it, but I think fishing where the fewer people go is generally going to give better value. It certainly seems to be your story. Yeah, totally agree. Sure. Yeah. So let's talk about how you assess the return on investment or the upside. And I suppose we ought to differentiate between things which have existing cash flow versus the ones we've been talking about. But obviously you've got a an assessment to make before you get into how to do it. So how do you even go about that? How do you assess the business? Yeah. How do you assess the upside potential, the return? So for example, uh, if you're right. going to buy yeah. thing that the horse that eats, how do you assess that's going to make you money in future? How did you mm-hmm. go about making that decision? Yeah. Two, two different scenarios. Again, it goes back to the, does it have earnings or does it not have earnings? If it has earnings, then what you're saying to yourself is in the process, you're doing what they call diligence or due diligence. You due diligence. The question is, are those numbers fan illusory numbers? Are they a mirage that someone's constructed so that you'll buy their business? Or are they legitimate numbers that you can say, okay, if this isn't a scam and this is legit and I inherited this stream of sales and profit, how far into the future would I break even? And just in round numbers, let's just say you, you buy something for, you buy something that's earning a thousand, let's just do this simple small map. You buy something that's earning a thousand dollars a month and you buy it for $12,000. In 12 months, you're going to be made whole. Your essence, in essence, on the 13th month, you're going to have broken even and you're going to have just uh, all that profit fall straight to the bottom line without the obligation of that original 
purchase. And how far into the future do you want to go? Is that how far you'll pay? Would you pay for 24 months into the future? Would you pay for 36 months into the future? How much are you willing to pay to acquire that future break-even point? And that's just with the current asset as it currently exists. And then, of course, all of us as entrepreneurs say to ourselves, can we add strategic value? Could I double the sales of this thing I'm acquiring? Or could I make it more profitable? And a lot of the ways that people do the making it more profitable is you have your existing assets in your business. Let's say you have bookkeeping services and a CPA and you've got a virtual assistants and you've got a social media team and you've got all of these things that you put together to run your current business and you to acquire something new, you could take out a lot of costs and taking out costs means that you're, would, you'd be more profitable. So that's a very, very common, that's been around forever, is just mergers and then elimination of expense, redundancies, and you get to new profitability levels. So that's that's one way to, to think about this, but you don't want to be over aggressive in your thinking. You want to just say, if I just took this, how long would it be until it started paying me real profits that are new money to me after I've spent the money to pay it, to, to buy it? So that's how to think about it. And all of us have different levels of risk. Now, if you've got a lot of cash on hand, you could say to yourself, I'm willing to buy something and I don't care if it doesn't pay me anything for four or five years. Fair enough, but that's a long time to wait. And that's the calculation on on it. And you're not trying to rip anybody off. You're not trying to do, you're not trying to be uncool to the buyer, to the seller in this process. You're just trying to think through what makes sense for you and what sounds appealing to them. And obviously they want to be paid a big amount for their assets and you want to pay as little as possible. And the truth has to fall in the middle in an acceptable way for both of you. you know? Yeah. It's interesting that you bring up the issue of the cash flow or how or the sort of, yeah, I suppose cash flow kind of avoid that word really. My, one of my favorite mm-hmm. words. In other words, you're thinking about how long it takes you to get your money back. And then yeah. after that, it's all grave. It's all profit. And yeah. then of course the elimination of expenses piece, as you said, that's more of a sort of <clears throat> so it's strategic acquisition thinking or roll-up thinking, isn't it? So mm-hmm. things you bolt mm-hmm. on, the back office functions stay about the same and maybe they expand a bit, but you don't have to buy a whole new bunch of people in. But what's interesting to me is that feels, for starters, a bit like the thinking that if you're a private label seller, particularly in port and you sell on Amazon, that's very much the thinking you have to think. It's just you add another zero to the time frame. So instead uh-huh. of thinking, I'm going to lose money on this product for three months and then the fourth month, I hopefully pay that money back. And then in the fifth, mm-hmm. sixth month onwards, I'm into good profits. And it feels very similar, except instead of thinking months, you're thinking years. So that feels not that dissimilar. Yeah, uh, in it's ROI, of, ROI yeah, thinking. mentality, yeah. yeah. But also the cash flow thing comes in, which then brings me to the question of, without getting into the weeds too much, but the basics of the deal structure that you were talking about. Obviously, if you have to pay all the money up front, then you've got to wait. Say, if you pay three times annual earnings, you've got to wait three years to get that money back. But presumably you would have structured deals a little bit differently and what deal structures have you come across in your own personal acquisitions? Sure. Usually sellers want money immediately (laughs) before they give you anything. There's different ways you can, different ways you can finance that. Is that sort of the question is how do you finance your deals or what are the deals types? Yeah. Yeah. I suppose it means when do you pay money out of your accounts and cash flow from your perspective really? Yeah. So different deal types would look like the, you can just write a check for cash and it's a you know, one-time transaction, wire the money, and then they give you all the intellectual property and assets and login passwords and details and all the business assets. You, you can do that, but you can, and you can use just earnings you have on hand, money you have on hand. You can use loans. A lot of us who have money flowing through Stripe or PayPal or anywhere, 
if you have a Dun & Bradstreet's number in the U.S., I don't know how a system works in the U.K. If you're a known business operator, you're getting literally pitched uh, loan offers all the time. So business credit is just sloshing around the world like crazy. So there's tons of money out there if you want to use a loan product. So you take a loan, you give the full amount to the seller, and they're made whole immediately. They give you all the business assets, but you really only made the first loan payment maybe then or within a month or whatever. So you just finance the deal over time. That's very straightforward. You can also then, if you wanted to, you could also just ask the seller if they would take payments. So that's another that seller financing in real estate terms, but you could just ask them, would you take payments? They might say yes to that, in which case you could just do it from earnings from your current cash flow, or you could still take a loan. So if they're making, if they're taking payments and you'd take a loan, you're really talking about very minimal front end money needed on your side. And then I would just say the fourth way you could operate is if there's something big and you want it, it's like, this is a big deal. You want it. You could always find an investor, a strategic partner and take the opportunity to somebody, you know, Hey, I've got an opportunity to buy a company. It's a little bit outside my reach. I'm looking for strategic investors. I'll manage it all. And, uh, but here's the deal. Now to do that means you've got to sell that person on the merits of the deal. You also have to have a deal with them to clarify how they're going to get rewarded. And that gets complicated. There's different ways they might want to be rewarded. They might treat it like a loan on their side where they just want money back at a, an interest rate. They might treat it like they're an, a part owner. So they have this equity owner's share mindset. Those are that, but those are legal issues. And so you want to, that's deeper into the swimming pool. I would say those are not for the new one time, first time, you know, deal doer. So that makes sense. That does make sense. Very briefly wanted to ask, because we should ask about a bit more about the how, I guess we're beginning to approach mm -hmm. that. But one thing I just wanted to say is evaluating risk. Now, obviously that's not a sexy word, but obviously when yeah. you're putting your own money down for something, I guess you want to know what's the potential for it to go to zero or you yeah. to lose some money. And how do you deal with that and evaluating that? And how does that affect the price you pay? Yeah, it's a great question. I would say the simplest way to evaluate risk is have a set of due diligence or uh, diligence questions that you sort through that you have all the questions in your mind answered related to the business operation. That could take a couple conversations, a couple hours, and I'd be methodical about it. Don't just go rando into a Zoom meeting with some seller and start just freeforming the stuff. You probably would want to make a list. Send the list to them ahead of time and say, I want to answer, ask and answer these questions and have answers to them. And so then they know what you're looking for. And so that's a nice way to approach it. And you can Google around and find out you know, what just there's everything's available on the internet. What, what questions should I ask when buying a business or stuff like that? And so you want to sort through that so that you're just comforted in your own mind that you understand what you're acquiring. Now, if this is a very similar business to your own, maybe it's a competitor or something like that, and you really operate in the space already then you're going to know a lot about the industry you're stepping into because it's your own, it's your own space, it's your own niche. I would start there if you're going to do a first-time deal. I would buy something that is so in your wheelhouse that you have many answers, but don't assume you know everything. Still go into it with a real strong case for inquiring. Now, the big challenge in that scenario, when you're dealing with a potential competitor, or at least in their mind, they're a competitor, is if they're really still amped up about being a competitor in their mind and they think there's a lot of, they still see a lot of value in what they've created, they will not want to disclose business details to you for fear that you'll 
somehow benefit from the disclosure of information. Now, if they're a failing competitor and you're a winning competitor, then in reality, you don't want to be unkind about it, but you could just say, I know no disrespect, but I know everything about this industry and I know how to operate this business. So I do know a lot about it. Now, you don't want to come off as this weird, I'm going to buy you out and I'm better than you or anything like that because that'll just tank the deal. But you do want to go in asking those questions from first, I guess you get first principles point of view or a beginner mind where you say, tell me about your business. How does it work? You might learn things. Now, they might ask you to sign an NDA or they they might not really want to be forthcoming with details. Like maybe they don't want to dis- disclose a, vin- a specific vendor relationship that they- is a closely held and you don't know who their vendor is. They're, they're making a lot of money. You could ask them a ton of things about that vendor without saying, tell me the name of the company or tell me who it is. You can find out all the business information. And so these things are all going into your mind to say to yourself, am I satisfied that I know what I'm doing? And then I'm going to put my money on the line. And in general, the best suggestion would be go slow, start small. Do one deal and that sort of helps you understand whether you're good at this. And, and that way you get you get your handle around how to assess risk and whether you can do it well. Yeah, great point. So I guess go slow is always a good starting point. There seems to be this tremendous overly artificial sense of urgency knocking around yeah. e-commerce somehow. Yeah. I guess that's just created by good marketing for Amazon courses and whatever else. But the truth is that there's no rush really. So Thank you for that. And starting with your industry totally makes sense, as you indeed have done. You said have done the majority of your acquisitions bang within your wheelhouse. You know it extremely well. So that's the all the sort of preludes to what you should be looking at, the risk stuff. So, ladies and gentlemen, we've had a very interesting episode today, I think, talking to Jason about the real-life aspects of buying businesses as a business owner rather than the broker's view or the acquirer's in this sort of roll-up, people like Thrasio and everyone who's copied them since. So quite a unique perspective I think we've had today. And very interesting. So the, as usual, Jason's got the knack of simplifying this complex stuff down to a few simple questions. The first one, does it add value to your current business? Second one, is it available at a reasonable price? And obviously there's a lot of nuance that goes into those things. So you may want to add brands that you will keep the brand name, but in your sort of wheelhouse, your vertical or your markets category, whatever you want to call it, or you may want to rebrand things under your house brand is one question. And then the question of value, how to value a business. And the interesting thing we've talked about today that I don't hear much talking about, but is an interesting opportunity, I think, is valuing a business that has assets, but that doesn't really generate earnings. So it could be get great patents or patents, good products, great team, something sorts on sorted on the social media side, or it could simply be an email list. Any one of these, or of course, altogether, could be valued on what Jason called a replacement value. So I think that's a very interesting opportunity that I don't hear many people talking about, but publicly, but privately, I know several people that are in that space. I mentioned one today. Um, The other things, of course, on evaluating the upside potential. So how solid are the numbers? Could you eliminate expenses by making it more profitable? Do you have things like social media team or a CPA or back office team? So marketing team or assets or back office team that you could plug in and thus eliminate waste for duplication. That's a classic way to make more money. And then we talked a bit about evaluating the downside as well. And the main thing is being good at due diligence. So very interesting stuff. The next time we are going to be talking about the how-to piece. So if you've decided you want to go ahead and buy a business, how to go into that a little bit more. As ever, we'd love you to subscribe to the show. We can see our download numbers growing over time, which is fantastic to see. And I certainly know the quality of people listening 
from people who have been talking to me about it. There's some really good minds out there. So gr- great that we're meeting your minds. And if that's you, I'm delighted you're listening, but we'd love you to do one of two things for us or even two. One is just subscribe to the show, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google, whatever it is that's your favorite thing. And the other one is if you can leave us your highest and best review or even ratings of just one, two, three, four or five stars on Apple Podcasts, we'd be obviously enormously grateful. If you would like resources and links and other help to do with today's episode, just go to amazingfba.com forward slash 406. Thanks for listening to the 10K Collective podcast for six and seven figure Amazon sellers. I really hope you found the show helpful to you. Please don't forget to subscribe to the show. And if you're on Apple Podcasts, please do leave us a quick star rating. It will take you all of 30 seconds to do it, but it does mean we can be found by and help many more e-commerce business builders. I wish you fast and profitable scaling, and I hope you enjoy the process of building your seven-figure Amazon business. Thanks very much for listening.